today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. The 2020 race could go down two paths. Bernie Sanders could continue his frontrunner status, or Joe Biden could have the chance to assume Bernie's coveted role at the front if he wins the South Carolina primary. Who will win that state, and to what extent did the recent CBS Democratic debate affect voters' decisions at the ballot box? Also, the pressing coronavirus has sent ripples in Washington and around the world. The president seems to contradict his own experts, the stock market continues to drop, and everyday fears of a worldwide pandemic become more prevalent. What pressing political and economic changes have come as a result of the coronavirus, and how long will it carry on for? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 124 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, from Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. It's episode number 124 of the Jay Doherty Podcast, Saturday, February 29th, 2020, a fresh 3 p.m. as we come on the air and record on the podcast here. So much to talk about uh, within, of course, immediate political news with 2020 in South Carolina happening today, and also the coronavirus. I am by no means any medical expert. I don't know anything uh, about about the scientific reality of the transmissibility of viruses, but I do know that there has been a lot of uh, political fallout and a lot of um, uh, sort of ripple effects that this virus has had within Washington and, of course, within the economic community of the world. Stock markets are basically falling internationally, and it is all about this darn virus. We're going to talk about what it is doing, the what how serious it is, and also look at the objective facts later on in the episode. But we begin with South Carolina. So, uh, it's currently a fresh 3.01 p.m. as I come on the air right now and record on the podcast. We do not know the data uh, yet, as of yet, uh, with South Carolina, but there are a lot of polls, uh, for example, one Emerson poll that suggests very strongly without outside of the margin of error that Joe Biden, the former vice president, and again, he's not the front runner, he's the national front runner, but not, in terms of state-by-state averages, he is far from the front runner. Sanders, as I predicted, is the... the uh, you know, the, the sort of holistic front runner in the entire race. I still maintain, even though Biden is doing unusually well, uh, well I, I suppose you could say unusually well, uh, in, in South Carolina, I do think that Bernie Sanders has the largest chance at becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party. And if Bernie Sanders does become the nominee of the Democratic Party, uh, Donald Trump will defeat him in 2020. That is my prediction. But it still looks promising if if the polls that are being conducted from, for example, Emerson College polling and Nexstar prove true, Biden could have a long, long or much, much, um, you know, higher chance of becoming the nominee in 2020 if these polls prove to uh, manifest in the actual caucus in the actual primary that is happening today in a couple of hours. Compared to the last Emerson College poll of South Carolina from March 2019, Biden and Sanders have risen four points each. Buttigieg has gained 11 points, Klobuchar has gained five points, and Warren and Gabbard have maintained the same level of support. So right now, Biden ranks 41% in South Carolina, according to this poll. Sanders, almost half of that at 25%. 11% for Buttigieg, another same 11% for Steyer. Klobuchar, 6%. Warren at 5%. Voters are looking are locking in their choice as 73% said they will definitely vote for their preferred candidate at this time. 85% of Sanders supporters say they would definitely vote for him. 75% of Biden supporters will definitely vote for him. 66% of Buttigieg supporters are committed and 59% of Steyer supporters will definitely vote for him. 
So that's very interesting there as well. Data for Progress also has a new poll out from a collection of people that say Biden is leading less, not 41, but 34%. Sanders at the same as the Emerson College poll at 25%. Steyer at 13 Buttigieg at 13 Warren at 7 so a little bit higher for Warren, higher for Klobuchar, or about the same for Klobuchar at uh, 5%, and one point higher for Gabbard at 3%. Is after a string of disappointed finishes, disappointing finishes in the early contest of the race, Joe Biden maintains a substantial lead in South Carolina. Biden has maintained strong support from black voters and also performs well among older, more, more moderate white voters. So that's sort of my, that was my prediction. I did not, although I, I do have to admit that uh, I did not think that Biden would have such a super loyal string of minority voters that generally are black voters. I thought that, first of all, it was going to be extremely easy for Biden to to totally win the the white, Irish, Christian, heterosexual, cisgendered male category. I thought he was going to come out of the gate and be the establishment candidate. And I'll talk about that in a second. But it turns out that it's a little bit harder for him to do that. And he was a little bit too cocky, as I pointed out many times in, in previous episodes. But the, the vote that maybe has taken its place is the, the uh, large support of black voters. So, we, we see that right now with, with Biden, and we hope, and, and he hopes that sort of carries him through South Carolina, and right now, in every single poll, it seems like it will. I mean, if Biden wins South Carolina, as the pundits and the polls are projecting, he, he may have a legitimate shot at becoming the next nominee of the Democratic Party. And you may remember that way back as I was talking about before, way back before the primaries began in the very early days of the of the 2020 race, I was pretty confident that Biden would be number one across the country and, and in state-by-state polls, which are more important. And the reason that he would be number one is because his experience in Congress on top of serving with Obama and being, you know, the established establishment politician uh, would do lots of good for voting numbers uh, among those Christian, heterosexual, cisgendered males and females, but it seemed like this group was actually looking for something different. And I was slightly, but not completely off in that assessment. I do think that Biden has has less trouble than, for, you know, maybe let's just say Elizabeth Warren than for than getting voters uh, of the demographic that I just described. So Biden still does well with a lot of religious white voters, but more progressive, forward-thinking ones seem to lean towards uh, someone like Pete Buttigieg while more uh, religious voters will probably head towards Amy Klobuchar, and all, all of the rest who just don't like Biden or Obama or the establishment at all will flock towards Bernie Sanders, and then people who really, really just do not want to accept anyone and be an outlier in the entire system and or buy into the advertising they see on YouTube in their state will go for Tom Steyer. That's the reason Tom Steyer is doing so incredibly well in these polls. He's in the double digits in many of them, and the reason that he is in the double digits is because he's poured hundreds of millions of dollars of his $2 billion fortune into advertising uh, both digitally and on the TV in, in South Carolina. So that's what we've seen right there. And you also have to remember, or you have to notice maybe, that I didn't even mention Elizabeth Warren in these demographics. She has effectively rendered herself totally irrelevant, um, and that's sort of the reason I didn't mention her. Most of it has to do with how vicious her attacks have been uh, in recent debates, and the similarity between her and Bernie also does not help her, and most of all, the simple fact that she is a pathological liar really, really does not help her whatsoever in becoming the next president of the United States, and the re- that's also the reason that we've seen major dropouts for the Warren campaign uh, in the past, you know, maybe two to four weeks. I mean, once these once the debates started 
or um, I guess I suppose not this debate, but the, the not the South Carolina debate, but the Las Vegas debate, which was easily the most consequential debate uh, in the Democratic Party so far in 2020. Uh, that was really when the candidates took their masks off and started fighting like hardcore. And that is when Elizabeth Warren's viciousness began to shine. Uh, you know, being being vicious only works if you're sort of the established person and you happen to be right and you happen to be telling the truth. Elizabeth Warren, as we've seen on multiple occasions, does not tell the truth. Um, so, you know, and also going off of the, the premise of the Democratic Party right now, which is actually a really good premise to replace Donald Trump and to get rid of him and replace him with a Democrat because we cannot deal with the 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 pathological un- mistruths that come from the White House. People want to move away from the constant fabrication of objective reality, and if you and you just can't do that if you elect Elizabeth Warren. Speaking of object- objective reality, a comprehensive poll of all South Carolina, uh, all of South Carolina from Real Clear Politics, posts some really interesting st- stats that show a B- that Biden was riding extremely high, nearly forty percent in South Carolina in the early days of polling, and that b Elizabeth Warren was trailing him then, and then as of recent, she just went totally kaput. I highly recommend you look you look at this graph here; it's inc- incredibly interesting. So let's look at in the beginning of November, right? Or let's actually we'll go back a little bit farther. October. October 7th, 2019. Biden was at 38.3%. He's about the same now, a little bit higher now. Uh, but in Warren is number two at that time, 15 points. And then we scurry a little bit long here into December. She sort of maintains that, drops off a little bit with 16, or sorry, gains a little bit with 16.3%, maintains that for all the way into January, then the first debate happens, she goes down to 14, with Sanders picking up one point of traction right there, then she drops down half a point, then in February, she drops down four points to 10.5, and then she just goes down, 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 which brings us to the present day, where she is currently at 7.5. So she had huge, large amounts of confidence in the beginning of uh, of of tw- or the beginning of the race, I suppose, in, in October. I know that's not the actual beginning of the race, but in terms of when these debates were starting, when people really started to pay attention to uh, you know these candidates, she was doing incredibly well. And then she just gave that up completely. <laughs> she started at 15, went up to 16, dropped down to 10, then moved down to 9, down to 8, down to 7, and now down, or now up slightly to 7.5. And all of this has climbed Sanders all the way up in the polls, and also Steyer, just considering how much uh, advertisements he has poured into the state. And, and this is also proof that ad- advertising at large scales, as we've seen with Bloomberg, like massively macro-large scales, really does work. I mean, Tom Steyer is not even at his prime, even though he's doing really well. He was at 18.5, according to this uh, RCP poll. And it puts him at 18.5, and then right now he dropped down a little bit to about 12.8, according to them. But other polls say he's, you know, about 11 as well. So, still, I mean, he, he's still doing incredibly well for a guy who has no political experience, what so or very little political experience, if you even want to say it's political experience whatsoever. I mean, Warren is just not doing well at all. She's even doing poorly in her own state, a local affiliate, WBUR, as an article that says, Sanders opened substantial lead in Massachusetts, ch- challenging Warren on her home turf. 
It says uh, from this WBUR poll, 47% of 18 to 44 uh, aged voters say that they want to go towards Bernie Sanders. A stunning 16% want to go to Elizabeth Warren in her hometown. The town that, I'm sorry, in her home state. The state that elected her to be their United States senator. I mean, that has to speak. It gets a little bit better for 45 to 59 with 18% of uh, voters trying to flock towards Elizabeth Warren. But as we've seen before, the the sort of baby boomer uh, movement of rich white voters tends to lead towards Pete Buttigieg, uh, who has 23% of the 45 to 59 vote in, in Massachusetts right now. Michael Bloomberg, 14%, 45 to 59, and only 16% for 18 to 44. And again, we see within Elizabeth Warren, in, in all these polls, she is leading with the women vote and struggles to do well with, with the male vote. Female votes for Elizabeth Warren, 22% in the uh, 18 to 44 range, oh, sorry, no, in just overall, uh, she has 22% females, and then in men, she has only 9%. The good thing about Bernie Sanders, whether you can give him credit for this or not, is that his, no matter how radical his ideas are, he has cultivated a movement that is, that is just so strong and so diverse. And that's reflected in everything that he sort of does. I mean, the, the amount, the 7 million campaign, individual campaign contributions, the fact that he hasn't gotten a single donation from a billionaire. I mean, these are crazy, crazy things that he has been able to accomplish. And that reflects, of course, in these polls. Joe Kennedy III, a man that is very respected, he's a congressman right now, he's running for senator. I interviewed him at one point. He is a Warren uh, backer who says that he's not worried about Warren's fight for Massachusetts. I don't know what will happen. I mean, does the stats say otherwise? But uh, you can hope, I guess, I suppose, if, if you want to support Warren. I'll go back to Biden here. Uh, we were talking about him before. I think the biggest problem uh, for him, it, it's not the economy. That's Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's problem because socialism will just not work. It's not the capitalist versus socialist uh, politics, not the moderate versus progressive battle, but it is his age. It, the simple fact that his mind has started to move faster than his mouth on these debate stage has really shined more statistically negative light on him and in, on his campaign. And I'm by no means saying that your age as a number, as a number independently, determines how qualified or unqualified you may be to run for office. It's just all about how you act and how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you and also how you present yourself. Bernie Sanders, actually, as a year older than 78, or then Biden at 78 years old, and he is super enthusiastic about everything, so much that he's had a heart attack on the campaign trail. Uh, I mean, they're both sort of dinosaurs of the United States Congress, uh, but in different ways. Biden just just is so, even in his prime years, he was just so boring, in my opinion. Bernie Sanders, while his, he's crazy, he's sort of just been the, the, the socialist sitting in the back halls of, of Congress for the past 8 billion years, he is a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more captivating, and on the surface, his ideas actually make sense, but they just don't work in practice. So, that's where things stand right now in terms of statistics. We're going to talk about the recent South Carolina CBS debate in one second, but first, do you have any questions that you would like to ask me about literally any of my opinions about politics? People always text in, I, do, I want to ask a question, can you ask blah, 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 uh, and they want to hear my opinions on certain things, but... 
and and but I'm you know rarely actually respond. But now you do have the opportunity to ask questions one time, or I suppose how many times would that be every year? It would be many, many times a year. <laughs> if you do have a question, you now have the opportunity to ask any question that you like. All you have to do is text those questions to 312-625-8492, and at the final episode of each month, I will be reading them and doing my best to answer them right here on the Jay Doherty Podcast. All you have to do is text 312-625-8492, ask your questions, and hear my perspective at the last episode of each month of the Jay Doherty Podcast. The number, once again, is 312-625-8492. The fourth episode of each month will be answering your questions. Okay, on to the South Carolina debate. So, last debate, the honorable and distinguished Michael Bloomberg was attacked with with tons of different lines and and sort of uh, punches from from pretty much everyone on the debate stage, which was really 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 not smart on their behalf. Compared to other candidates, Bloomberg uh, is not doing particularly well in voter turnouts, especially <laughs> considering his his advertising uh, spending. He's starting to increase now that he's poured a couple hundred million dollars into to the race. But the overall state numbers for for Bernie Sanders clearly installs him as the national front runner right now, and he probably will continue that legacy uh, all the way to the finish line. If if you consider the finish line to be the Democratic nomination. In the Las Vegas debate, Bernie Sanders should have been getting all the heat. In fact, he probably would have dropped significantly in the polls if he did get more heat and if Michael Bloomberg was not on that stage. It took the other Democrats a second to realize it, but they finally have. And instead of going after Bloomberg the entire time, they just went after Sanders in his most recent in this most recent South Carolina debate. But we'll, we'll circle back to Sanders in just one second. But I think the, the funniest thing throughout this entire thing was to see the, the scripted the scriptedness of Pete Buttigieg. So I, I have to say that, that Pete Buttigieg was such a better candidate when he began this race than he is right now. He's way more progressive right now than when he originally began. He started to get way more cocky as of recent, and he's talking. he's taking way, way, way too much advice from his advisors on how to speak in the debates. One of his many scripted lines was in South Carolina, in the South Carolina debate, in which, again, he basically used synonyms to make the same point that there is some sort of binary political theory surrounding its 2020 race that decides between two radically different ends of the same party spectrum based in values and principles from different countries and time periods. I know that's sort of a complex sentence, but that's basically all the scripted lines that he has. It just He tries to sum up and sort of bring in some philosophy of how this is going to work and what ultimately voters will end up doing when frequently it just doesn't look good at all and it also just makes him look like he's taking advice from you know overpaid advisors on his campaign here is Pete Buttigieg using one of his uh, new and improved scripted lines I am not looking forward to a scenario where it comes down to Donald Trump with his nostalgia for the social order of the 1950s and Bernie Sanders with a nostalgia for the revolutionary politics of the 1960s. Okay, so just to substantiate my claim about scriptedness, here are a couple of other times that I've found in my extensive collection of Pete Buttigieg speaking. Uh, where he said some outwardly predetermined statements on the debate stage. So I realize that, you know, first of all, before I do this, here's a little bit of disclaimer. I, I realize that all of these candidates do this sort of thing, but but there's just there's something about how Pete Buttigieg delivers these things. They make them stand out as more scripted than others. Here are three that I found in my archive. Most Americans don't see where they fit if they've got to choose between a socialist who thinks that capitalism is the root of all evil 
and a billionaire who thinks that money ought to be the, the root of all power. Let's put forward somebody who actually lives and works in a middle-class neighborhood in an industrial Midwestern city. Let's put forward somebody who's actually a Democrat. Look, I, I freely admit that if you're looking for the person with the most years of Washington establishment experience under their belt, you've got your candidate, and of, of course it's not me. The perspective I'm bringing is that of somebody whose life has been shaped by the decisions that are made in those big white buildings in Washington, D.C. Somebody who has guided a community written off as dying just a decade ago through a historic transformation. Somebody who knows what it means to be sent to war on orders that come out of the Situation Room. We need a perspective right now that will finally allow us to leave the politics of the past in the past. If you think the last four years has been chaotic, divisive, toxic, exhausting, Imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. Okay, so so that's just a uh, sort of collection of things that I found of Pete Buttigieg speaking in some uh, scripted terms. Mike Bloomberg was also somewhat scripted, but he did a little bit better job delivering it. Perhaps it's the decades of political and economic experience that allowed him to do that. <laughs> he had a slightly better preset statement in which he... Uh, sort of uh, played on the idea that there's some sort of major Russian conspiracy to intervene in U.S. elections this year. I talked about this briefly at the end of the last episode in, in the idea that uh, Russia is is actively intervening in social media campaigns to try and elect Bernie Sanders to be the Democratic nominee of the 2020 uh, race, Democratic Party. Pundits believe that uh, Bernie Sanders is the most easily defeatable by Trump, Russia wants Trump to win, so by transitive property, the, the Russians want Bernie Sanders to win the primary and subsequently proceed to be smashed into pieces by Trump in the general, which will probably happen in terms of not only the, not only the debates, but also uh, in terms of poll numbers. Uh, it's much easier to, I mean, assuming you're doing well, and it's, when I say you're, I mean doing the economy, uh, <laughs> assuming the economy is doing well, it's very easy to be reelected if you already hold the office. And that's probably what's going to happen. And it's also much easier when you go against someone who's like insanely radical, who wants to just shove all these reforms down and actively destroy the entire United States economy uh, and propose ideas to blatantly do it. I don't, I, I do not, I, I do not think that Donald Trump is by any means, like absolutely not. He's one of the worst uh, moral arbiters of this nation that has ever existed, if you even want to call him that. I think he's damaged the social fabric of this country, totally shook up the moral compass of this nation. But socialism is just horrible, horrible. Democrat, I don't, I don't care what sort of sugarcoat you put around the name of it. It is just not a working philosophy in this nation, and it's also not a working philosophy in any other nation that has ever tried it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I don't know why it has so much support. I think it's sort of too good to be true, and if you looked into the facts, you'd be able to understand that, as I've talked about before. Uh, and maybe one, one episode, I might do a comprehensive breakdown of why I think capitalism is better than socialism. But I digress. Let's just talk about uh, foreign policy on more of a general level. In a separate discussion with uh, Sanders and Bloomberg about China and super broad ideologies as a nation and as a country, which was for some reason quite an extensive topic of discussion at the most recent debate, Bernie Sanders was quite passionate in his defense of defending authoritarian governments uh, in, in this recent debate. 
condemned authoritarianism, whether it is the people in Saudi Arabia that the United States government has Cuba, loved Nicaragua? for years, Cuba, Nicaragua. Authoritarianism of any stripe is bad. But Period. that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good. Look, that's what Barack Obama said. It's sort of funny. So he's sort of basically saying, and, and there is a little bit of context leading up to that, which I would recommend you listening to. Uh, Bernie Sanders is basically saying, Look, dictatorships as a philosophy are bad, but dictatorships often do things that are good. And that is not, not something that you want to hear from the president or the, the wannabe president of a nation that has prided itself and been founded on the basic principles of democracy for the past 200 and whatever years. Uh, so why Bernie Sanders would, would even go there is just ridiculous. And, and why he would have to defend that. He should just flat out say, and he sort of did, but he, he, he sidetracked on the idea that, that there is some good to be found in dictatorships. Uh, that, that they can do some things that are good, and there are countries that have done some things that are good. That's what he's sort of saying. Uh, but on a more broad level, and Bernie Sanders' foreign policy is just a little bit confusing. And, it, and this also goes, sort of proves my, my thinking behind the political circle of existence. That's what I like to call it. So if I ever wrote a book, I would call it the political circle of existence, and I would bring this up in it. When you go around, like if you imagine politics as a circle, where the top of the circle is extremely, extremely left, and the bottom of the circle, well, I mean, maybe we could just say the left of the circle is left and the right of the circle is right, right? That would be a little bit <laughs> more intuitive. Uh, and you want, it gets a little bit red as you go towards the, uh, or it gets very red when you go towards the uh, center or not the center, the, the the right, and it's way more blue when you go towards the left. And it just becomes a little bit more purple, a little bit more purple as you come around the edges. And those edges and the bottom and the top of the circle are the far left and the far right. And at some point, there is a very clear mix of purple there. And the isolationist sentiment that the Trump administration has tried to push and the isolationist sentiment that Bernie Sanders has tried to push are converging on those purple lines of the political circle of existence. The, the fundamental premise of Marxist-Menshevik communism <laughs> it was the lack of expansion of borders so you could divert all of your resources and, frankly, attention towards improving the domestic situation of the country. That's what Bernie Sanders wants to do. He said it many, many times that we need to create an international coalition to stop existence of, and stop violence within the Middle East. He doesn't think that we should have nuclear deals with other countries because we, we as Americans do, do not have the right to intervene in the politics of other countries. And that, that's, that's sort of a premise of a lot of Democrats, but Bernie Sanders takes it to an entire new level that is very akin to socialism and actually more akin to communism, if I'm being very frank, um, which is really interesting. And, and again, Trump does the same thing, but for different reasons. The, the, and I'll go through these, so very briefly. The reason Trump wants to sort of stay out of, for the most part, not always, but sometimes stay out of uh, conflicts within other countries, is because there's sort of an arrogance within the Republican Party that America is the best country in the world, and I, I personally believe that, yes, it is the best country in the world, but the, the way that it conduct, that the way that America sort of conducts itself, or the way that the leaders conduct America sort of it brings in this premise that it is the best country, you must submit to America, and we are the best, we, we're too good for the other countries to be meddling in other, in other affairs of other countries, right? That's sort of the, 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 
the reasoning behind isolationist sentiment within the right-wing sort of arbiters of foreign policy. The left-wing is sort of the opposite. It is that we are so humble that we need to sit back and watch other countries and not not export our resources to these other countries. And we'll just let them do whatever they want because we're just another country in the global community. We're not going to use our trillion-dollar economy. We're not going to use our decatrillion or decatrillion uh, GDP. We're just going to let them do whatever they do, and we'll just keep to ourselves over here in the corner. But the way to do it is really to have a balance. If you don't want to negotiate with terrorists, that makes sense, right? I mean, you, if you don't want to negotiate with terrorists and you just want to be, you know, stay away from the terrorists, you can do that. And it comes down really to common sense. If you want to stay away from the bullies, you stay away from the bullies, being terrorists. And if you want to uh, participate and help other countries for mutual benefits, like Trump has just done with India, and as many presidents have done, particularly Obama with Cuba and others, well, Cuba's not the best example, so scratch that, but any other countries, there is a reason to do that. But saying that we are just the isolationists, we're going to put a hat on and sneak over here in the corner with our trillion-dollar budget, for no matter what the reasoning is, and it's starkly different on both sides, is really not the best idea. So that's sort of a really broad point about isolationism within foreign policy and sentiment. And, oh, and by the way, I don't even think I mentioned, if you don't know what isolationism is, I suppose I explained it, but the, the very definition of it is basically like, okay, we're gonna we're just going to shut up and let everyone else do whatever they do, no matter how rich or powerful we are and how much you know, uh, you know know might we have on the foreign scale. We're just going to be quiet about it, sort of what it is. Uh, and that that's the, the premise of what Trump has been saying. I mean, the, the reason he says, keep America great, you know, America first. That is a very isolationist thing. We're going to keep America first. We're not going to put the world first. He, he literally at his most recent rally, I'm pretty sure Trump said uh, something along the lines of, I'm not the president of the world. I'm the president of the United States of America. Bernie Sanders Sort of has the same exact thing, but yeah, you know, again, it's it's a different ideology. It's a different it's it's a different reasoning behind his statements. He thinks that we that he is the president of the United States, but he only should be the president of the world, which is why he wants to create an international coalition to solve problems. That that's again that communist akin to Menshevik communism within the nineteen seventeen uh, Russian Revolution, I suppose, if you want to compare it to that. Anyway, uh, on the, back to the debate. The, the moderators have faced intense criticism for the lack of control that they had during this debate. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, they No one could keep their mouth shut. An interesting compilation from Now This News sort of illustrates that very clearly. Here's just a couple of seconds of that, uh, that, that YouTube video that was uh, published by Now This News that is titled, Candidates Forgot Their Manners at the South Carolina Democratic Debate. Okay. Mr. Sanders, let's talk let about me, can I say something? Look, first of all, Bernie, first let, me go. Go. let me go. I think, Tom, I think she was talking about my plan, not yours. I think we were right. talking about math, and it no, doesn't take math. two hours well, to do the math. Because let's talk about let's what talk it adds about up to. We math. Don't. Let's talk about let's math. Let's talk indeed. about math. Okay, if so here's the math. Nothing, no, here's the math. But, but, can I respond to the Doing nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you're allowed a quick response, and we would like to allow the other It just goes into nothing, doesn't it? Senator Sanders? I mean, the moderators have done nothing. They were just sitting there. Like, Bernie Sanders was effectively asking a rhetorical question to the moderators about whether or not he could respond to his point. They <laughs> just didn't say anything. It's sort of funny. The moderators at these debates have are you know usually pretty good, but they did face some criticism uh, from pundits around the world. If you I mean if you're a moderator and you're not doing well, it's really not good. All the, the all the fo- the attention should be 
on the candidates during these debates, especially if they do bad, really bad or really good. And ABC News, uh, of course, the networks are going to attack each other for this. ABC News' David Bowder, an AP media writer, says CBS News faced an ill-timed blow to its reputation on Wednesday following a bruising Democratic presidential debate that is that its moderators struggled to keep from spiraling out of control, although it could take some comfort in the numbers. The Nielsen Company reported 15.3 million people watched Tuesday's debate in South Carolina on CBS and BET, while down from the 19.8 million we saw last week in the uh, NBC debate from Nevada, Nevada and MSNBC, it revealed that public's interest is high. Trump also had an interesting reaction to all this nonsense. He said, <laughs> this is just crazy, he said on Twitter, Pocahontas was mean and undisciplined, mostly aiming at Crazy Bernie and Minnie Mike. They don't know how to handle her, but I know that she is a chucker. Steyer was a disaster who, along with Minnie, are setting records in dollars per vote. Just give me an opponent. That's what he says. Okay. I don't know. Interesting, interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> Trump has quite the way of dealing with these problems. Um, let's see, what else? And there's some developments within elitism within this uh, 2020 race. The forward-thinking, equity-based party. Uh, the Democrats, of course, are thinking about whether or not their billionaire candidate should support their nominee, who's likely going to be the nominee for the president of a trillion-dollar company, and that nominee happens to be a millionaire. So it is a, uh, a billionaire candidate thinking about whether they would support or endorse a millionaire who is running to be the president of a trillionaire country. And, of course, Bernie Sanders is tentatively by me and others projected to be the nominee of the race. And the big question is, will Bernie accept money from billionaires, people who hates? Literally, the, the slogan under his campaign is paid for by Bernie 2020, and then in parentheses, not the billionaires. The question is, will Bernie accept money from billionaires like Michael Bloomberg? The answer is a bit confusing, and he, here's why. It all started with Andy Cooper over at CNN. He was moderating, he was moderating a, a town hall in which this female named Amy Leitcher, a former school teacher, asked Bernie if he would ever at all consider accepting a donation from Michael Bloomberg. If if Sanders, assuming Sanders, you know, would indeed win the nomination. It took him about three minutes of dodging the question until he flat out refused to answer it. And that's Bernie Sanders I'm referring to here. Here is Bernie's lack of response and then eventual response to that question. And don't worry, it gets a little bit more confusing after this. So... Let me just follow up on that, because Anna was specifically asking, would you accept, if Michael Bloomberg doesn't get it, you get the nomination, would you accept if he says, look, I got $500 uh, million left over that I'm going to give to you, would you accept that? Well, we're going to, what I did say is that if Mr. Bloomberg wins, and I certainly hope he does not, I will support the Democratic nominee. Not the question. As of now, we not have not taken, we don't have a super PAC, we're not asking for a super PAC, mm -hmm. that is my position right now. So you're not sure if you would take the money or not? Okay, I'll leave, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Uh, I mean, let me just answer yeah. in this room. I don't think we're going to need that money because, interestingly enough, There's I think bit when you have here. an agenda as we have that speaks to the needs of working families, you're going to have millions and millions and millions of people chipping in 10 bucks a piece, 50 bucks a piece, and that's how you're going to raise the money you need to defeat Trump. So that's his answer. I mean, he could have just said that right out the gate. But he didn't. Uh, and the given in this equation is that Bloomberg would be willing to actually financially support a candidate that went, that would win the Democratic nomination. And would B Bloomberg actually be willing to contribute to another candidate 
with his enormous $62 billion fortune, would he be willing to do it if it was not him that was the nominee? And it turns out that he is. Here is uh, Anderson, I believe it was Anderson Cooper, who's definitely on CNN asking a uh, question about whether or not Mr. Bloomberg would be willing to financially support a candidate and what other measures he would take to uh, you know, ensure the success of the Democratic Party in 2020. It's easy for me to make the commitment that I will support any of the Democratic candidates if they get the nomination because... But, but it's easy to do it because the alternative is Donald Trump, and that we don't want. Let me also say I made a commitment that we have these campaign offices all over the country, and we will keep the main ones open through November 3rd, so whoever is the nominee can use those. So, I mean, that's pretty generous of, of Mr. Bloomberg, isn't it? I mean, I I feel like Bloomberg for partially is running for president just to stick it to Trump because they hate each other so much. They're both New York uh, billionaires. That, uh, you know, trying to do things to, uh, you know, make deals are probably very well known. They all talk about each other's behind each other's backs. And Bloomberg just wants to make Trump a little bit mad. I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the primary or maybe even the chief credentials or chief reason as to why Bloomberg is running against Trump right now. I truly would not be. I'm not saying that even sarcastically at all. Uh, would not be surprised whatsoever. And I think that, that will sort of see uh, Bloomberg... Um, spend more money, spend more money, get on Trump's nerves, and, and we'll see, as a result, Trump continue to insult Bloomberg with idiotic defenses like, you know, Mini Mike and others. We'll just see what happens. We'll see what happens with Mini Mike and the other elitist developments and how, how not supposed non-elitists who have three houses in this country and claim also simultaneously to be a socialist are going to respond to all of it. I suppose what's a little bit more pressing is the coronavirus. We're going to come back in just a couple of minutes. We're 37 minutes into this episode, and we'll talk about the coronavirus and some updates that we've just received from the White House. All that and more coming up. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Jay Doherty Podcast on the JD Media Network. Listen to the Jay Doherty Podcast on iHeartRadio at j-doherty.com slash iHeart. Welcome back, everyone. It is the Jay Doherty Podcast, Saturday, February 29th, 2020, 3.46 p.m. As we come back on the air, coronavirus is in the rarefied air, as we like to say. The reason this episode is called the, the uh, rarefied air is because not only of the elitism within the, the Democratic Party and was also within the Republican Party with Michael Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders sort of trying to play the catch-up game in terms of donations, but also because coronavirus is quite literally in the rarefied air of around the world. But it is certainly causing a panic all around the world. An article from USA Today is titled, uh, Coronavirus Fears Empty Store Shelves of Toilet Paper, Bottled, bottled Water, Masks as Shoppers Stock Up. It is by Kelly Tico, Jessica Gunn, and Mike Snyder over at USA Today. They say, on Thursday afternoon with Ryan Ozawa, when Ryan Ozawa hit the Iwale Costco next door to his office in Hawaii, he ran straight into a long line of carts stretching the length of the store as shoppers waited for toilet paper and paper towels. Costco employees were limiting shoppers to five packages of each and hand-loading them into carts. As pallet after pallet was cleaned out, one shopper at the end of the line shouted, quote, the end of the line for the toilet paper and paper towels is right here. 
I mean, there's even, you know, specific newsletters that these places, including USA Today, the New York Times, and others, are creating uh, to be updated on coronavirus. It is that big of a deal. Uh, and it's sort of being dramatized, I do have to say, within the media, uh, you know, as expected. Uh, but there are a lot of cases, and the good news is that a lot of them are being either recovered and or quarantined and or isolated and being treated. There, right now, according to the COVID-19 map by John Johns Hopkins, which you can find at j-story.com slash coronavirus map, there are almost 86,000 cases of coronavirus that are totally confirmed. 39,761 of those have recovered. The majority of those recovered and the majority of the, the ones that have actually existed are in mainland China. An overwhelming majority, almost 80,000 of them, 80,000 of those 85,000 are in mainland China. The others are in the other leading ones are in South Korea, Italy, and in geez, South Korea and Italy. Um, the majority of the ones who have covered and the, the who have uh, recovered and the majority of the ones who have actually died have been in the mainland of China as well. So it is generally being within China. That's where the general uh, sort of layout is right now. Uh, within those, uh, yeah, within uh, the, throughout the world. It has spread to the United States. It's mostly the edges of the United States. For example, states like South Dakota, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia. All those are really, or, well, I guess suppose Virginia is on the edge as well. But those are uh, not being affected. The ones that have been affected uh, are California, Chicago, Seattle, uh, Wisconsin. Not not Wisconsin. Or yeah, actually, actually, there is one in Wisconsin. I meant to say Washington though before. Um, and then also some outskirts of Canada, near New York and such. So there are certainly uh, some spread within the outer you know, edges of the United States. Uh, and recently, as of a couple hours ago, there was unfortunately a death within the United States. We'll talk about that in a second, how the president responded to it uh, after sort of trying to play it down. Um, and I suppose an article from the New York Times titled, Trump has a problem with the coronavirus threatens with, you know, sorry, Trump has a problem as the coronavirus threatens the United States. His credibility, and that is the major problem. Trump has sort of tried to calm everyone down by lying, as he frequently does, uh, about the coronavirus. So uh, the big question is, and the the New York Times has an article answering this: How is the United States being affected? At least 65 people in the United States have been infected with the virus, with some newer cases not believed to be connected to the recent overseas travel or contact with a person known to be infected. A person in King County, Washington, near Seattle, has become the first known death in the country after contracting the coronavirus. Uh, there's an information guide that has been published for California, if you live there, as that is where there are many cases right now in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned that Americans should brace for the likelihood that the virus will spread in the United States. Some lawmakers question whether the nation is prepared or not. Trump doesn't want there to be any panic. We'll talk about what he said at the recent press conference that was held a couple of hours ago. And an Omaha hospital in Nebraska that drew attention for treating Ebola patients is now playing a key role, again, in the coronavirus. Uh, the New York Times and, and other publications are asking from, from parents, teachers, and administrators to uh, comment about how they're going to prepare for the coronavirus. Uh, and, you know, people are comparing this to other viruses as well, even though we'll see in a second Mick Mulvaney, the White House Chief of Staff, does not want that to be happen, 
happening. Uh, the New York Times is re- reporting, quote, Responding to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014, President Barack Obama visited the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta to announce that the administration would send as many 3,000 people to the region. Mr. Co- Mr. Trump, in contrast, contradicted his own health experts in a news conference Wednesday evening, insisting that the spread of the virus was not inevitable and excoriating two of his favorite foils. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, for, quote, trying to create a panic. So again, the president continues to lie, even about something that is not political whatsoever. He's made some interesting claims about this entire virus, and they do not seem to be rooted in medical knowledge whatsoever. I mean, if you, I mean, who on earth would take medical advice from, A, someone who's not a doctor or a nurse, and B, someone like Donald Trump? Uh, but anyway, it, he, he's made these interesting claims that are not rooted in medical knowledge whatsoever, and it, they also, they tend to generally try to calm the, the political and economic storm that could come as a result of the virus, and Trump doesn't really do that good of a job at this, in my opinion. Uh, it's very clear that he has an agenda going into it and doesn't really seem to care about the facts or how it could actually affect someone like him or someone he knows. But here is Trump sort of uh, being asked whether or not he thinks the the coronavirus is more of a political and economic crisis or a public health crisis. That's actually the exact question from uh, this reporter right here. The worst thing stocks is the financial crisis. more of an economic or public health crisis? Well, I think it's uh, just people don't know. It's the unknown. You know, they look at it and they say, how long will this last? Uh, I think they're not very happy with the Democrat candidates when they see them. I think that has an impact. And uh, we, think, we think we're going to win. We think we're going to win easily, but you never know. It's an election. I don't think that's helping. I made one decision that was a very important decision, and that was to close our country to a certain area of the world that was relatively heavily infected. And because of that, we're talking about 15 who seem to be all getting better, one is questionable. So that's where it stands right now. He's saying that he, I mean, that, that's the action he took. Of course, he tries to put a political spin on it with 2020. I mean, how in any way, unless maybe one of the candidates was somehow known to see <laughs> that they have some sort of disease, how is the coronavirus in any way linked to the president having to deal with 2020 candidates? I don't know. He puts a spin on whatever he wants. Now, the other things that the Trump administration is trying to do. They're trying to say that this is another partisan draw-up of lies that only exist to defame Trump, uh, which this virus is not a partisan twist of lies. It is, <laughs> it's just not. It, it, it originated in a foreign country, from what we know. It has no place in in the world, obviously, but it has no place and in, no intention. It is a disease. It has no political intentions. It originated in a foreign country, and the Democrats have suggested, as they've done for literally everything, and as Republicans have done for literally everything in the history of the world, uh, or in the history of this country, they've suggested different solutions to tackling the same problem and what in solving what could become, or what has become, a worldwide problem. And that is how politics has been played, and that is how politics has gone for the past millennium. Here's Trump at a rally the other day saying the Democrats are just trying to politically profit off of this coronavirus as their next takedown method, as if impeachment and the Mueller report weren't enough. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax. That was on a perfect conversation. 
They tried anything. They tried it over and over. They've been doing it since you got in. It's all turning. They lost. Yeah, and it turned out that the president is actually sort of echoing more bluntly Mr. John Michael Mulvaney, otherwise known as Mick Mulvaney, who who said almost effectively the same thing, just a little bit less bluntly, at the CPAC conference the other day. We took extraordinary steps four or five weeks ago. Why didn't you hear about it? What was still going on four or five weeks ago? Impeachment. And that's all the press wanted to talk about. The reason you're paying so, you're saying so much attention to it today is that they think this is going to be what brings down the president. That's what this is all about. It's not a death sentence. It's not the same as, as, as the Ebola crisis. Right. Are you going to see some schools shut down? Probably. May you see impacts on public transportation? Sure. But we do this. We know how to handle this. Yeah, I mean, you know, could it be the end of the world? Yeah, it could. I mean, you know, are you going to see that, you know, a couple of the hundreds of billions of people will die? Of course you will. But that's just, we know how to deal with this, right? No, I'm kidding. It actually is sort of being exaggerated by the media in a way. I think that's why it's really important to go to j-story.com slash coronavirus map if you actually want to see the factual statistics of where this case is and uh, if you are in a place where you could be at risk of, of uh, getting it. The dangerous thing, the reason that it is so exaggerated, or that is being talked about so much, is the transmissibility rates, as we've seen from CDC reports, are just incredibly high. I mean, it's very easily, easily uh, transmitted to, uh, you know, people. Uh, you just walk down the streets, transmitted by air, I believe. So it is that that's really the main concern. So it's very important that you look at the objective facts from the CDC, from Johns Hopkins University and other credible sources. And you can go and access that map once again at j-shorty.com slash coronavirus map. So clearly the, the Trump administration has a, a political agenda surrounding the coronavirus, but that can easily become very troubling very quickly. It already has, and it did. So the problem is uh, when you have two fields, and this, is, this does not apply just in politics, but it applies in pretty much everything. When you have two fields in a crossover, and each of those fields deal in objective and subjective reality simultaneously, there is always inevitable conflict. And the subjective reality at play here is politics, and the objective reality at play here is medical. Uh, and, and the pundit of this sort of crossover is Alex Azar. We talked about him uh, when he was first being nominated way back in the day. Uh, when Trump, he and he's Trump's appointed Health and Human Services Secretary, he basically walked a true statement out that the president didn't really like. You could sort of tell by his face, even though he, Azar wasn't looking at him. And then he just backtracked it with praise on the president's behalf, who was standing directly behind him on the podium when he said this at the White House podium the other day. I mean, it's, it's crazy. This guy is just... He's the head of basically the health department of the United States spewing facts about the coronavirus at, from objective medical research. But having to cover up and make the president get a little bit of an ego boost and making him feel better for everything that he has done. Here's Alex Azar at the White House podium delivering objective facts and then backtracking it with some sort of subjective uh, appendage to Trump's existence. Uh, so I uh, just want to report to everybody that uh, thanks to the president's historically aggressive containment efforts, we have really been able to keep the risk to Americans low right now so that everyday Americans don't need to be worried. But that can change, and that's why it's important for right all there. of us to prepare. That's why the president is leading a whole-of-government effort. He's put the vice president in charge of our entire government getting prepared and making sure our state, local communities also are prepared. And so the president really deserves incredible credit. Do you hear what he did there? I mean, literally, he's saying 
the president is amazing. The president is amazing. The president is amazing. Also, this device, this disease could spread to you. The president is amazing. The president, I mean, you know, it's like, it's sort of like a sandwich with like, like really, really good bread in the sandwich and then like rotten meat. That's sort of what Alex Azar did. It was really, really fluffy, 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 and then it got to bad meat and then fluffy, fluffy, fluffy again. That's what he did with <laughs> what Alex Azar did to the president in the president's ego. And as of just a couple of hours ago, Trump was at the White House again, uh, the podium, the, the press podium, being slightly more realistic about the coronavirus, literally reading from a script, which he so, uh, you know, just not regularly does. Here is uh, Donald Trump addressing sort of the premise of the problem in his introductory speech about the coronavirus today. At this moment, we have 22 patients in the United States currently that have coronavirus. Unfortunately, one person passed away overnight. She was a wonderful woman, a medically high-risk patient in her late 50s. Uh, four others are very ill. Thankfully, 15 are either recovered fully or they're well on their way to recovery. And in all cases, they've been let go in their home. Additional cases in the United States are likely but healthy individuals should be able to fully recover. And we think that will be a statement that we can make with great surety now that we've gotten familiar with this problem. So, okay, so he's a little bit more objective there and a little bit more realistic there, which is really good to see. Uh, but what he, he did mention it pretty briefly, but what he really should be be talking about if you really wanted to make the point about how you shouldn't be scared is that the majority of people who actually die from these sorts of viruses not only coronavirus but others and this is sort of a well-known medical fact again I'm not I'm not a medical uh, uh, expert by any means literally by any stretch of the imagination but if you are immunocompromised meaning that you have sort of uh, you know for whatever reason maybe you're elderly or maybe you have cancer, or maybe for whatever reason you have less white blood cells to fight off diseases like the flu, even or very the common cold. I mean, if you have less than those, it you it is much easier to be compromised by a disease, and especially a disease that is like incredibly uh, threatening to not only your life but also like the these your the systems that make up your existence. So. That's what Trump should be saying. He should be saying that a lot of these people, especially this death that recently occurred in America, uh, roots from people who are immunocompromised, meaning they don't have the proper and, and fully functioning immune systems that the majority of people in America have. Instead, he turns it into a political thing where it's all about, you know, me, 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 everyone's trying to fight me, and this coronavirus is a made-up partisan witch hunt once again. And that's just not the truth. But that's what he's sort of trying to say, and he should be twisting it the other way in the more realistic way. Uh, Trump also wanted to, of course, uh, give his best shot at damage control. Here he is literally <laughs> telling the media that the, and, and lo local political elites uh, to not cause a panic at this recent press conference. And I'd like to just ask and uh, caution that the media, we would respectfully ask the media and politicians and everybody else involved not do anything to incite a panic because there's no reason to panic. No reason to all. panic. Uh, this is something that is being handled professionally. From the moment that this country learned. Oh, okay, so that's it. Anyway, I mean, you know, he's just saying no reason to panic. There's absolutely no reason to panic. I repeat, there is no reason. I mean, you know, what this guy is doing, talking about panicking and stuff, 
he is just, it's all for the regulation of the markets, it's all so people aren't going crazy about it, but what he really, really would be a calming presence is if someone literally just stood up there and delivered the facts as they were. That would be that would be pretty calming, and then putting a positive twist on it, based off of the facts. That would really calm it. Instead, we have Trump, and then also Mike Pence, who is the appointed head of the of Trump's officially named Coronavirus Task Force, uh, which he praised Trump too. Also at a press conference uh, that was held at the exact same time that Trump delivered those previous statements. Here is Mike Pence. Uh, praising Donald Trump again. From the moment that this country learned of the spread of the coronavirus, President Donald Trump took, took decisive action, decisive. established the White House Coronavirus uh, Task Force. And as the president just described, the president took unprecedented action to suspend all travel into the United States from China. It simply had never been done before by any previous administration. Um, and uh, it is among the reasons why the threat uh, to Americans of coronavirus remains low, despite today's tragic news from Washington State. Yeah, so that's what he says. Uh, it's a great time, you know. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Trump has done great, but it's also not good for America. That's sort of <laughs> what uh, the the motto of this entire presidency will be when you look back on it in history. But the question is, why is Mike Pence? Why is Donald Trump? Why are they saying that there's no reason to panic? other than for people to just stop panicking. Really, the reason is because of the markets. Besides keeping the social fabric of America tell together, you know, for, with safety as the main priority for everyone, uh, which is certainly not a priority of the Trump administration whatsoever, the question is why on earth would Trump continuously mislead people into thinking the coronavirus is not as bad as people are saying it is. And it's all because of the stock market. All, all about the stock market completely. There's a nice fact sheet from the New York Times, which says that there has been, I mean, the S&P 500 has had its worst week since 2008. Uh, the Fed says it's willing to act if the outbreak worsens. Uh, I mean, there's a, there was a video game conference in, I believe it was Las Vegas, that was, no, no, I think it was something else, but there was a video game conference from, that, ha, that, involved, that was involved somehow geographically or otherwise with China. They postponed it. China's manufacturing manufacturers, uh, they say, according to the New York Times, the sentiment is, quote-unquote, dismal. And Wall Street's jitters extend beyond stocks, according to the New York Times. The S&P 500 in the United States down 11%, Dow Jones in the United States 12% down, the FTSE market in Britain 11%, DAX in Germany 12%, uh, South Korea's market 8%, the Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong 4% down, and the Nikkei 225 in Japan down 10%. Jerome Powell, the, the head of the, the the chair of the Federal Reserve, issued a statement uh, reaffirming that the central bank will use its tools and act as appropriate to support the economy, according to the New York Times. So, the, I mean, the markets are horrible. People are losing money left and right, so now's a great time to buy. I mean, <laughs> if you just want to put it that way, I mean, this thing will blow over at some point. So... If you wanna, if you wanna buy, I would do it. And here's here's the president's half answer to reiterate that for you. The worst thing for stocks is the financial crisis, more of an economic or public health crisis. Well, I think it's uh, just people don't know. It's the unknown. You know, they look at it and they say, well, "How long will this last?" Uh, I think they're not very happy with the Democrat candidates when they see them. I think that has an impact. Okay, I don't want to waste your time anymore. That's that's what he said, and he's basically saying, you know. 
this thing will blow over. There's nothing to worry about, blah, 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 but not delivering the facts whatsoever. I think you can come to the same conclusion that he is saying, but you don't need the lies. Because, I mean, mistruths basically all root in laziness. Every, all, the, all the lies that he does are generally either rooted in pure deception or pure laziness. And that's where it stands right now in terms of existence coexisting with existence on a medical and political level here on the Jay Doherty podcast. Uh, there's so much to talk about. We're going to be back talking about uh, more developments in 2020 race. We're getting really, really close to seeing who the Democrat, the Democrat uh, who will become the nominee is in 2020. Super Tuesday will occur before the next episode of this podcast. If that is how you calculate your time, then it is very soon. Super Tuesday is happening very in the very, very near future. And uh, we'll have coverage here. And analysis right here on the Jay Doherty Podcast, as we do all the time. It's Saturday, February 29th, 2020, 4.08 p.m. as we close out episode number 124 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Remember, I talked about it uh, in that in that liner there. We're going to have 312-625-8492 is the number you can text in. And at the end of every, and the final episode of each month, we'll be answering listener questions on the text line. And then if we really, really grow and start doing that, maybe I'll start accepting voicemails. It's just to have call screeners and things to sort through those. It's a little bit tedious, and I also put in, like, generally between 8 to 10 hours of, uh, of work per each episode before I actually even start broadcasting. That doesn't even include, like, featured image and getting these clips and stuff. But we'll see what happens. 312-625-8492. Start getting your questions in. I'd be happy to answer them when we come back next, uh, I guess, whatever the last episode is in March. We'll answer all of your questions on that episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode number 124 of the Jade Doherty Podcast. See show notes and episode highlights at j-doherty.com. Clips and highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. This is the Jade Doherty Podcast. The Jay Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the Jay Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com. The JD Media Network.